This is the California Politics Podcast for the week of Monday, January 7th, a special edition of the podcast. This week's episode, the 40th governor. Gavin Newsom takes the oath of office as governor of California and sets an important tone, I think, for his administration right from the get-go. The country is watching us. The world is waiting on us. And the future depends on us. And we will seize the moment. We're going to talk a little bit about the speech, about the arrival of a new governor, departure of the former governor, and kind of what it means for the California political landscape ahead. I'm John Myers, the Los Angeles Times. My Times colleague, Melanie Mason, here in the Bureau. I'm emphasizing here in the Bureau. We will get to that point in a moment. But Ooh, like suspense building. I is, like it. It is. Stay it's, tuned. Stay tuned for the end. Don't fast forward to it yet. Hear all the conversation about Gavin Newsom. Uh, so Governor Newsom, get used to saying it, not Governor-elect, not Lieutenant Governor, Governor Gavin Newsom took the oath of office here on Monday, a little bit before noon, uh, in a ceremony full of um, uh, broad messaging, specific messaging, and a whole lot of family humor, which we can talk about as too. Yeah, no, it kind of was a sort of something for everybody mm-hmm. inaugural, which is fitting because as we've written, it was a something for everybody campaign. So nice. it felt like if you wanted your, you know, feel good moments, if you wanted like a little bit of controversy when there was a heckler and when you wanted big sw- like soaring rhetoric, like you had it all. It was, you know, we laughed, we cried, we ate popcorn. I don't know how to finish this analogy. <laughs> well, but the good thing is, is I mean, that that is the way Newsom has framed um, the day and the job ahead. California for all. Um, even on the first official press release from the governor's press office here on Monday, it, it had the banner, California for all. That photo of Jerry Brown is gone. That's yesterday's news. Um, and there was so much of that in the speech, this idea of... Um, of unity. And I think also, too, as we will talk about here, or let's talk a little bit about now, not only unity for California, but presenting an image of unity in contrast to the rest of the country. Yeah, you know, in some ways, there was these real echoes to, um, if we remember the statement that legislative leaders put out the day after the November 2016 election, where they kind of said, you know, California will be the the protector of the nation's future. That was very much the theme that we heard from Newsom uh, today, which is in, in the midst of what can be a very rancorous national political conversation, he is trying to say, we will present California as an alternative vision, as perhaps a counterbalance. He, of course, ran a campaign that was nothing but presented himself as a counterweight to Trump. And so he extended on those themes, maybe with slightly um, less sharp elbows. I mean, he, he, he was pretty harsh towards Trump, but didn't call him out on his name, didn't have that snarkiness that sometimes we see in those Twitter back and forths. Right. So it was like taking that that idea of California's the resistance and maybe elevating it, maybe giving it a little bit more flowery language behind it. It was interesting in the... Um in just this notion to me of um, of trying to present the the uniqueness of California as a strength, because th- to this point, so much of the political rhetoric on other parts of the country is like, well, look at California, or you know, the president would take aim, or or Republicans in Congress, and and trying to show that as a strength. You know, I'm looking at parts of the speech here. Our people are big-hearted and fair-minded when those qualities are more vital than ever. Um, and then he went through the litany of things that he would go through in that, the fire victims, the, um, the immigrants who are, who are coming in and their need to be treated fairly. Um, he, again, as I said, he painted in some bold colors, but also some, some specific things as well. And, I, and, and I, 
I don't know what I think about that. Like, I mean, I guess, you know, we're not sitting here, we're not speech reviewers. This is not a speech review podcast. But I guess that's what you do. You, you, uh, you encourage people, you lift them up, but you also want to give them a taste of what's coming, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you went way too macro, right, if it was way too 10,000 foot, then I think it would feel almost, there'd be nothing to grab onto to really sort of fixate on. But I think that, that one of the things I took away is, you know, California, this idea of because we are so big and because we are diverse, not just in um, ethnic and racial backgrounds, not just in the languages that we speak, um, but also geographically. I thought it was so interesting how he made the point to hit on about how rural Californians, we will remember, you know, I remember you and I see you. It, I think that what he was emphasizing is that California, by virtue of its bigness, can kind of be a microcosm of the nation. And so the idea that maybe if California can be functional, um, and of course, remember, we're talking in the midst of a federal government shutdown. So remember that that's kind of the split screen image that we talked about. Um, I think that the fact that he is sort of saying like, there's something there's something for everyone here in California and something that I think the rest of the nation can see in themselves. So it's not just the big cities like San Francisco and L.A., which is, I think, maybe what people outside of the state see, but that we do have these uh, agricultural areas, that we do have these exurban communities. And the fact that he highlighted all of them, I think, sort of shows that California as, as kind of a nation to itself, that's how he wants to govern it. And the same time, uh, before we play a clip here and talk about one specific part of this, at the same time, acknowledging um, the underside of a lot of things, acknowledging the poverty, acknowledging the homelessness, um, acknowledging the people who did not vote for him, the people in uh, rural areas, perhaps, that were not Newsom fans or um, fans of the Democratic um, Party and the Democratic Party principles at this point. Um, that acknowledgement of the other side of the coin, I thought, in a way, um, and said, I want to be your governor, too. I, I want to serve you. I want to work for you. Yeah, and and, and the income inequality sort of um, emphasis that we heard a lot of, um, I think that that is a way in which Newsom is going to try to distinguish himself from Brown. Um, you know, I think that, that Governor Brown, um, whereas, well, while he'll talk maybe about some of the symptoms of, in, of income inequality, um, he it, wasn't, it didn't feel like it was an animating force as maybe some of these other drivers issues were. And so Newsom putting that marker down. And I think that very much aligns with um, the tone and tenor of sort of Democrats nationally. So it puts them in in, in the, the mix, in the conversation of what people are trying to grapple with. But of course, in California, it is so acute being a place of such tremendous wealth and then such tremendous poverty. The fact that you have an incoming or the new governor saying, this is going to, I'm going to acknowledge this, we're going to, to, to face this head on. Now, of course, the asterisk always being with what and how, and are the problems so big that you can actually take them on? Well, and to we that, shall see. And to that point, there were some particular things he talked about, which at the time we thought, oh, that sounds like he's going to do something. And then he has proposed doing something very soon thereafter. But let me play a part of the speech where he talked about, as he said, um, the external forces, the things that, are, um, that he wants to push back on uh, as California governor. Make no mistake, though. I, you know, there are powerful forces arrayed against us. Not just politicians in Washington, but drug companies that gouge Californians with sky-high prices. A gun lobby. A gun lobby that's willing to sacrifice the lives of our children to line their pockets. And polluters. Polluters who threaten our coastline and payday lenders who target our most vulnerable. In other places, interests like these still have a, a tight grip on power. But, but here in California, we have the power to stand up to them, and we will. 
<laughs> so um, my, I heard that and my kind of eyebrow shut up like, oh, really? Like these are still very powerful forces in California. I think you could argue yeah. that the gun lobby, um, you know, perhaps certainly compared to what we see on the national level, you know, California, uh, California legislators pass new gun uh, restrictions or regulations every year. We see them signed with, with, with a lot of frequency. But all of those other sort of um, interest groups or industries that he mentioned, I mean, there has been efforts for a long time to get uh, payday uh, lending regulations or restrictions passed through the legislature, and we haven't seen it happen. We saw a drug pricing transparency bill passed recently, but only after kind of a real food fight through the legislature. And so it is kind of this, this indication that California has vanquished what, what Newsom is describing as industries that he doesn't like, I don't think really reflects the, the reality here on the ground. And so I think that that's an interesting question by him calling them out in his inaugural speech. Does it make them, does it put them on nervous, um, on notice? Does it make them feel a little nervous that, that maybe the governor is, is, is going, is, feels empowered to, to target them with more laws and more regulation? Um, but it's not like Democrats in the legislature have been, um, you know, rampantly passing a lot of reg- regulations of these industries. Well, and then let's let's look let's for, look for a moment and step back and look at what we know about the Newsom agenda in these early days and hours. So, um, the first sense that we got of the Newsom agenda was right over New Year's. Um, uh, I wrote the story. We got our hands on a document that talked about uh, a budget proposal, and, and it's really early to talk about budget proposals on January first, uh, when the budget's still about a week and a half out. Um, early childhood education, almost $2 billion of money uh, for that, a lot of it one-time money, and we can talk about the details of that in a moment. Then there uh, was another document that surfaced that talked about um, expanding another free year of community college, so up to two free years of community college. The state already provides one through a deal that Brown and lawmakers made um, a couple of years ago, I think. And then the third element, which we saw in documents again revealed um, over the weekend, was a potential major, major expansion of parental leave, of family leave. Um, And the details are going to matter there. I'm using both words, but we haven't seen the detailed documents there. In some ways, especially the early childhood and the community college stuff, I would argue largely feel good, largely easy to sell, easy to do. There seems to be broad consensus among Democrats, especially in Sacramento, doing stuff. Things get harder after that. And so here we are on the stuff today where we talk about health care. And let's talk about specifically, or at least the overview of specifics, of um, what the governor did. He walked off the stage. He walked into the new office. He did a Facebook Live video. I mean, the, the, um, the mechanics of this governor compared to the last governor. It's going to take me a while. It's like whiplash. You know, the Jerry Brown era of maybe I'll talk to you in a week versus Gavin Newsom, I'm going to talk to you three times in one day. Um, it's going to be so great. <laughs> it'll be, it's just different. It's just very different. Um, Facebook Live um, uh, announcement where he signed some executive orders and sent a letter to Trump in Washington. And over the course of these, they were all about health care. Uh, he signed an executive order that would change, it looks to be changing uh, the way that state government entities purchase prescription drugs, kind of putting them all under one entity, I think, or one umbrella and leveraging the power of that to try to drive the prices down. Um, he asked for changes to uh, federal law to allow him to move to some kind of single payer system in California. There's a campaign promise, asterisk, asterisk. And then this budget proposal, of which we haven't seen the details yet, to expand Medi-Cal for more undocumented immigrants, more um, of the young adults up to age 26, 
and, 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 wait, but wait, there's more, I feel like that old television commercial, an individual mandate in state law to carry health insurance, like the individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act that has now been carved out by Republican efforts, um, a California individual mandate. And then there was a California Surgeon General, and there's a whole bunch well, of stuff Well, and subsidies, in right? And, oh, yes, right. And increasing the the Affordable Care Act subsidies, the covered California yeah, subsidies. which is, again, it, not based, insignificant Based on tag. income level, I guess, ostensibly trying to move it to a different part of middle-class Californians that weren't getting that subsidy. This is a lot, and this is also fraught with um, challenges once you get into the details. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. It has Day been, one. It's been so interesting because we watched him campaign. We've talked about this all the time, right? During the campaign, there were a lot of campaign promises. And um, he, you know, would promise big, bold, ambitious action. Then he gets elected. And it was so interesting. I thought the rhetoric markedly changed uh, after November 6th where he started saying, hey, 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 you know, I, I can say no too, and let's not get our expectations too high. And I'm also going to be a fiscal steward like Jerry Brown and building reserves are very important. Um, to, to come out here today, it almost feels like that pendulum is swinging back, that plus the, um, the, the budget leaks that we have seen. And Look, any one of those things that have now been floated out there as a budget proposal, I think would be a centerpiece for a governor um, in their first year, in their first agenda. Right. The fact that there are four, three. Well, the three things we th- talked about yeah. before Inauguration Day yeah, and then plus all this, of the stuff today. Right, plus this today. Um, it's and, and, and all of these things the legislature generally agrees on. Details are going to be paramount here, but it's it, who is going to be the person sort of pairing back? or winnowing, um, because it feels like he's got big, bold, expansive plans. The legislature's also got big, bold, expansive plans. So already we're seeing a fundamentally different dynamic than what we saw between Brown and the legislators, where Brown was always the one pulling people back uh, in. And I know that a lot of legislative people are going to be mad that I said that, but But this is true. It's it's true. At the outset, that was just the bounds of the negotiations. Bingo. 100% true for January budgets. People can argue about how we got into the spring, may revise enacted budgets, but, but Brown generally played it tight in January to see what they would come back with to then go from there. And, and yeah, Newsom has put so much on the table here. Some things that, um, are super hard to do, individual mandate. Let's talk about the individual mandate thing for a moment, because the mechanics of that are going to matter, how you get it through the legislature. Um, I certainly have a hard time believing that um, critics, opponents of that, won't want to maybe seek legal recourse if the state was to do that, wondering how where the bounds of a state can go again. This is And this is the part of the conversation we've had since Trump came to office. Where does a state's powers end and the Fed's um, end begin, et cetera, et cetera? It used to be Texas and Obama, and now it's California and Trump. And this is another push. Yeah, I think that there is um, – I think that your point about legal challenges is such a smart one because I would anticipate particularly on the individual mandate, that's where I am wondering um, if that if we're going to be seeing some challenges if that eventually gets passed. Remember that that was the crux of the first challenge uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court um, to the Affordable Care Act. You know, the, the other question is, is, is can you even get it to that point? Um, you know, there were – there was chatter about imposing a state-level mandate um, when the uh, uh, the federal-level one was revoked. And there's, I think, a lot of back and forth of, do you need a two-third vote to do that? A lot of people believed you could, uh, you, you did. And so the question is, is like, you know, he has a supermajority and then some. Um, you also have some pretty powerful backers that want a mandate in addition 
to the health advocates, you know, the insurers, they want it because they want to, you know, have as many clients as, as, as possible in the bigger pool. Um, now, I also think what's interesting is coupling that, uh, the mandate with the uh, subsidies, you know, the, the big issue that he's trying to combat here is affordability, right? The, the problem of premiums rising, particularly because of some of the actions we've seen on the federal level, level which are, are uh, shedding people outside of the of the insurance market, and therefore the, the pool that exists tends to be sicker, therefore more expensive, therefore premiums are going up. So um, by doing this sort of one-two punch of trying to get more people back into the pool and offering subsidies um, for people who are having a hard time hitting those premium, paying for those premiums, um, you could really deal with, I think, one of the biggest complaints about the Affordable Care Act is that affordable is a relative term. Yes, it may be more affordable than what it would have been without any ACA at all, but that doesn't mean it's cheap. Um, but it also isn't cheap. Yeah. To do subsidies, uh, particularly, you know, how narrow a band are you going to target? That you know, is it so narrow that it doesn't actually really affect very many people? So I will be fascinated to see how he rolls out these details and what populations are targeted. Already, we're seeing a little bit of a hemming in when you're looking at um, the undocumented population. So we saw a proposal from right. lawmakers to expand it to all undocumented um, adults. Uh, of course, people under the age of 18 um, are already eligible for Medi-Cal regardless of their immigration status. Um, he says he he goes all right. We won't go all the way for all adults. We'll go stop at 26. Is that going to be sufficient for the people who have really well, made this a, a, a rallying cry? Well, that's what I was going to say. That I mean, like it's it, it, the question is: Is it a an, an olive branch, a concession? Is it a you know? Is it half a loaf that that the groups have been asking for that would support? Um, to roll back really really quickly, I think it's important to notice that 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 in the documents we saw right out of the gate about um, the. The subsidies for uh, health insurance premiums under the Covered California Universe, that um, he's proposing that you raise the income cap that makes you eligible for that. So an individual earning up to almost $73,000 a year could get a subsidy. A family of four earning up to about $150,000 a year could qualify for lower premiums. Um, that that brings in, there are two things that come to mind about that. One is um, where the, where that line should be. Um, and I think that's kind of to your point, Melanie, about like, you know, people are going to negotiate and talk about where is the right place for this. And the second thing is, is it's a reflection of the cost of living in California. Um, $150,000 in California is not $150,000 in, no disrespect, Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, places where the cost of living is lower. And I think it reflects a California approach to to the issue. But to the fundamental question that you raised about um are people feeling good enough with this? Uh, whether it's the um, bringing um, undocumented immigrants up to age 26 into Medi-Cal, or all the things, the nods that he gave to single payer today. Is that enough? A letter to the president, but then subsidies here. You're shaking your head no, it like is no. definitely not going to be enough. I'm sorry. Okay, this bold is, prediction. This is me punditizing, which I really don't want, want to do. And so I'm happy to be proven well, wrong. Well, you'll be gone after today. <laughs> oh, 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 spoiler alert. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Um, may, look, maybe it'll be enough, but every signal, signal that we have gotten so far with right. regards to the people who are really passionate about single-payer health care say that they want it now. And when the argument was put to them before that you need federal approval um, in order to get this done, they would really push back against that and say that that was an excuse not to move forward. They believed that there was legal basis for them um, to act regardless of what the federal government. Now, there's a lot of back and forth about whether that was the case or not. But if we're talking just about how people will be feeling about this, 
he, it would have had to do a lot of sort of back channel um, handholding or or making sure that people were were uh, reassuring people in order to 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 assuage their fears that he's punting on single payer. Because I will be honest, I read that and thought, okay, he's putting that on the back burner for now and moving ahead on some of these other things. Well, especially when you send a letter to Washington, because you'll say, well, I'm trying to get the federal waivers we need here, but there are others who would say that's not the approach you should take. So. Yeah, it's going to be it's that's going to be really interesting. And and back to what we kind of um, said a moment ago here, this is not the budget yet. Um, we don't know exactly what day we get it this week. We know we have to have it by January tenth. We're not going to do another, another podcast, folks, after the budget. Sorry, this is the podcast for this week for more than one reason. Which again, spoiler alert. Um, but. Uh, this is not the whole budget. And so what else is going to be in it? What are his revenue projection numbers? How do they match up with the legislative analyst? How are, is all of this paid for? Some of this is ongoing costs. The expansion of Medi-Cal to more of those who are in the U.S. illegally, that could have a cost of $250 million a year, according to an earlier analysis of a legislative effort. Um, a lot of the stuff we heard before, early childhood education, that was one-time cost. Even that, though, has some controversial elements, like part of the money they're proposing not to be part of the Prop 98 school funding guarantee, which then begs the question, why is it not coming under schools if it's part to expand kindergarten, which is what it was for? Um, there's a lot left to figure out. And back to the macro, like, holy crap, day one, and we've got all these things, this grist for the mill already. Yeah, so. no, well, you know, which, look, if they didn't if they didn't do that, then uh, I think that they rightfully would push back and say, you guys in the press would say he campaigned on all these promises and now he's backing away from all of them. So, you know, he's, he, this is, this is the Gavin Newsom that campaigned for governor. Right. Nobody can be surprised by this. Um, Whether you like it or not. Exactly. No, sorry, that's a different, <laughs> podcast audience will get that. Go back and find that video. Yeah. Um, but I think that the question is, is so so he went bold and he went bold in a lot of different directions. And if you're a legislator and you're trying to figure out, all right, where are the pressure points here and what are the pri- the, the priorities? Because he put out a whole bunch of things. Are all bunch of these, all of them equally important to him? Where can you leverage? Where can you negotiate? I think that there's going to be a lot of trying to read, reading the tea leaves and trying to figure out this new governor who a lot of these lawmakers don't know very well. Um Okay, so you say you want to do eight things. What are the three that you really care about? But that's the challenge. When you identify that, then people know where they can get you. That's the whole problem yeah. with politics. Like you, you, people will say, I want you to tell us what you really care about. And as soon as you tell us what you really care about, aha, now we know where we can get you and we can leverage and we can do it. Ah, politics. We love it so much. <laughs> um, let's talk about a couple of other things here quickly on this podcast. This is kind of a first blush at, um, at the new governor and the new administration and what comes from there. Uh, let's talk about some of the optics of this first day. Um, we had um, something we have not seen in California in a very long time. Um, the Schwarzeneggers had children, young children. I think their youngest, Christopher, um, someone will tell me how old he was on 2003 on that inauguration. But I remember the picture of them coming in, and they were young. It was a young family. Um, this is an even younger family, four children, two girls, two boys. I think their oldest, Montana, is the same age as my daughter, um, and then their youngest, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, Dutch Newsom, uh, two years old. I think, I think, he's, he's, think two. he's two years yeah. old. Um, but just the optics of a young family coming in. Um, there's Mo- something moving about, into the governor's moving mansion? into the governor's mansion, which uh, only Jerry Brown uh, has lived in it uh, since uh, his father Pat Brown did. The Reagans didn't, and no one else did until uh, uh, Jerry and Ann Brown moved back in it. But it's just an interesting moment. It's it's different. It's um, 
It's not necessarily better, but we've gone from the oldest governor to one of the youngest governors. We've gone a governor who was a bachelor most of his life to a governor with four young children who are rambunctious, as we'll get to in a moment. It's just the, the optics were interesting, I think. And and, and uh, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, the first partner, and I want to make sure that we call her the title she has chosen for herself, who um, delivered a, span, a, a poem that what felt like to me was in pretty good Spanish, fluent Spanish, um, it was just there was a lot there to take in about about the change. Oh yeah, I mean there is you could you could really sort of pick that apart for days. And I think the first thing that I took away is how much the personal is going to influence the political and the policy. And so again, I mean we just talked about all of the things that Newsom rolled out. How many of those have to deal um, with uh, with things that are important for young families, the idea of expanded family leave, the idea of early childhood education. I mean, when you have such a young family sort of as the backdrop to this conversation, it adds a little bit of heft. And I do think um, that that Jennifer uh, Siebel Newsom is going to really be an important figure in this administration to watch. And I I think she is in this administration. I mean, she, uh, in a profile I did of her uh, a couple of months ago, told me that she sees herself as the main thought partner of her husband. Been, and she has been featured very prominently in his campaign. She's featured very prominently in all of the sort of official duties up until this point. And, you know, she she has strong opinions about um, gender, about uh, the relationship between uh, politics and families. And, and I think her influence is going to be significant. And I think that people who ignore her do so at their own peril, because I think that's a key decoder into watching how this administration is going to work. And of course, the other key decoder for day one was Little Dutch, the two-year-old son, the youngest son of Gavin and, and Jennifer Newsom, who in the middle of the speech, his father was up there and making his points, all of a sudden ran on the stage, ran around the stage. Um, the governor picked him up and held him for a while. Uh, please don't be a cynic in politics, folks. I feel like there are these people who have already seen him like, oh, this was planned. Nah, I've had a two-year-old. Two-year-olds <laughs> have a mind of their own. Of course, I've never been elected governor. And he kept coming back and forth and back and forth. He had the pacifier in his mouth. He had the white blankie that looks very much like the one my son had. I think I've seen that one before. But it was a moment of levity in the middle of this. Uh, and I think the governor, for his part, handled it pretty well. I mean, it's an ad lib as a dad. You got to hold, you got to pick up the kid. Yeah, he improved very well. I will admit when I first saw it, I thought, oh, this is... You were the cynic. This is well, well planned. I stopped thinking that when Dutch kept making his way to the stage. Right. Then it became very clear that this was a very stubborn two-year-old who just had to have his moment in the sun. Wasn't it Rudy Giuliani's son who kept doing this thing and it became a meme? Or it wasn't a meme because it was a days ago. It was an SNL sketch. Anyway, sorry. But yeah, the, the, he was, I mean, he was clearly on his own. He was just... Yeah. And, you know, again, I mean, how we it is it is not Jerry Brown's horseshoe anymore. And I think the fact that you had these young children literally running around um, on the stage while these things were, were happening goes to show that this is, it's just... A governor that's going to be coming in with a different perspective. You know, one of the other things that I think is important to note about how the day went um, is how how much the programming emphasized the state's diversity. So you, it started off with a, a gospel choir um, from Compton uh, in Southern California um, that was, you know, personal opinion here excellent. They were really good. It actually got everybody up and dancing, which was um, very fun to watch. Um, then you had um, a sort of Mexican folkloric band. Um, you had Jennifer Siebel Newsom doing a poem in Spanish. Um, you know, I think that 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 this administration is acutely aware that um, 
Gavin and Jennifer don't necessarily look like what most of California now looks like, but I think that the indications of that they um, see a California that's very inclusive, that they want to celebrate that, again, the fact that they are celebrating in particular a lot of the state's Latino heritage in the midst of a federal government shutdown over border security and over concerns about immigration, I mean, it is... um, there's, there's symbolism there. And not only that, the unplanned symbolism. Our colleague Jasmine Uloa noticed it uh, and wrote it on Twitter that not long after he had talked about those young children, um, those young immigrant children and the challenges they have had, here comes his child of a similar age and the, for lack of a better term, the contrast between the life that Dutch Newsom is living and the life that those kids are living and the connection his father is trying to make about a California for all. There's a lot. I mean, you, you really could. You can wrap a lot and break it up and, and look at it in a lot of different ways. But it is definitely um, it's a very different vibe. I think we are going to have a different vibe. I think um, the Newsom family living in Sacramento um, will bring a different element to the capital city. I think it might actually bring a different element to the small community, the cabal, as you might call it, of lobbyists, government relations people, staffers, lawmakers in Sacramento to have a governor and his family living here, to have an engagement a different way. I talked about the Schwarzenegger family, no disrespect to them, but Governor Schwarzenegger lived uh, in the Hyatt Hotel. Uh, The family never came here, and he flew home to Pacific Palisades every Thursday. This is not going to be that case. This is going to be a family that, by from what we can tell, is living here and being part of this capital community. Well, and not only that, the governor's mansion is located in a neighborhood that I actually think is symbolic of so many of the conversations that we're having in this state right now. So it's in Midtown Sacramento, um, which has been a neighborhood that's changed it's changed a lot in the five and a half years that I've been here, um, and I'm, I was told it changed quite a bit since since even before then. Uh, since I've been here, yes, <laughs> yeah. very much. There has been, um, you know, the kind of reurbanization that we have seen, people wanting to move in from the suburbs back into the core of the city. You see more families. You see more sort of a, a, a focus on um, things like, you know, bike shares and scooter shares and all of those conversations that are happening in cities. But at the same time, Midtown um, Sacramento has a really serious home problem. And it's not going to be something that the governor can avoid and his family can avoid when you are walking from your home to the office every day. It's going to be in your face. Another issue is that it, there's an affordability question about these neighborhoods. Rents in Midtown, just as the rents in lots of other places in Sacramento, are going up. Housing prices have been going up. And so all of these sort of abstract policy questions, they are playing out in real time, in real life, in the neighborhood that he has chosen to um, sort of raise his family. And again, I think that that's I think that's good because I think that, that otherwise you can just think of all of these things in the abstract um, or, or just sort of intellectual exercises. Um, and again, I mean, Brown was living there too after the renovation of the um, of the mansion. He, he had to walk um, those neighborhoods as well. And I think that um, he took those, you know, those things very much to heart. But again, with Newsom being a different person and different approaches, I think I would not be surprised if Midtown, quite frankly, informed a lot of his governing. I'm going to I'm going to assume that is why that part of Sacramento, downtown Sacramento is called Mansion Flats. But that is the (laughs) Mansion Flats kind of neighborhood on that border between downtown and, and Midtown. It'll be interesting. And then one more thing here before we get to the spoiler alert moment. Um, and that's just really stepping back macro. Um, I wrote a, um, a news analysis piece for the paper here today too, um, that put it out there fairly boldly that I don't think, I don't think there's any argument that Gavin Newsom, uh, today and 
for now, is the most powerful politician in California. Uh, he has more power than anyone else. I think, I think you can make that case fairly strongly. That's not taking anything away from the new Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, or the senior leadership in Washington from California, McCarthy, Feinstein, et al. Um, Gavin Newsom is the most political, powerful, politically powerful person in the state. Um, he has come in at a unique moment in time where his, where his uh, political party is in a, um, a dominance phase unlike any other. He won resoundingly on Election Day. Um, he was the front runner from wire to wire on this race. Um, never looked back. He was in the race longer than anyone. I had to remind myself through this and writing this how he got into the race. That fascinating moment in 2015, that one, that series of two or three days when Barbara Boxer announced her retirement, Newsom said, I'm not going to run for the Senate, but I am going to run for governor, and effectively made it clear that this is where he is. Kamala Harris moved away and went to U.S. Senate. Um, and that gave him an enormous leg up on everybody else who wanted it. Villaraigosa, John Chung, uh, Kevin DeLeon, Tom Steyer, I'm name-checking everybody, but people who might have wanted to be governor, he had a leg up on everyone. And now he has the ability to be a political kingmaker in a way. You've got a presidential race coming up. You've got a guy who can go toe-to-toe with the president and has shown a proclivity to that different than Jerry Brown. Um, you've got a guy who the legislature needs to figure out. You've got a guy, if he has ballot measure things he wants to do, there are interest groups who are willing to pay for them. It's hard for me not to call him the most powerful person in California. And so there I wrote it. I think, I think his political power is quite high. And I think how long it lasts depends on what he does next and how he picks the next thing to do and use it and how he maybe continues to grow it too. I mean, it's not... These aren't static things. They're dynamic kind of processes here. What happens in the next few weeks and months is going to be really interesting. And the other thing to think about, to, to your point about how there was, how it has been a, a, a pretty charmed path for him um, in, in recent years to get to this point, is when was the last time he was really challenged? And I know, because I'm anticipating all the angry text messages I'm going to be getting, I know he was challenged as mayor of San Francisco. Yeah. I know that he was mayor in, in, in during the recession. Politics in San Francisco are really unlike any other city in California. But then they, then he was lieutenant governor for eight years, and he ran a campaign where nobody really laid much of a glove on him. And so he has had a, a pretty remarkable stretch for a politician in the limelight as he has. He had a small little blips of uh, criticisms from Villaraigosa in the campaign, but it never gained traction. Yeah, I don't he, think he, there's— He eclipsed that entire thing. I don't think anything really right. put, laid a mark. And so um, I will be interested to see what happens— at the first moment of being challenged. How does he handle that? I think a lot, you know, he has, he has changed a lot. He has matured a lot since this time as San Francisco mayor, but we haven't actually seen that maturation play out in a time of being tested. And so I think that that is actually going to be um, a pretty crucial moment as to, to John's point about how he is so powerful. What do you do when that power is, is challenged and how he navigates that is really, I think, going to be the first determining factor of what his legacy is. And yes, I'm dropping the L word on his first day, day in, in office. office just to really infuriate everybody <laughs> so real quick parlor game is mason uh what do you think he does when the presidential primary comes calling this gets us a good transition to our spoiler alert but like i mean we have an early primary we're going to have people casting ballots by mail um while iowa and new hampshire are still going you've got um potentially two three californians who could be in the race kamala harris eric garcetti eric swalwell tom steyer that's four um, does he does he anoint someone? Does he become the guy? Does his endorsement matter? What do you think? 
I don't. I mean, it's a great question, and again, I was just pundit, we just throw it out there and say punditizing. Uh, yeah, discuss amongst yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, there is there's a big reward in in anointing someone, and if if that's if the horse you pick ends up going far, then then man, that's a powerful ally to have. But there's you know what what if you what if you anoint somebody. Um, and it turns out that your endorsement doesn't matter very much. What does that do to sort of the perception of your political power? Um, not, not you know, not the least of which is alienating people who maybe you didn't pick. And so um, I think that that a lot is going to have to be on how he feels about his own sort of political footing in the state, how his approval ratings are, how voters here feel about him. You know, uh, Jerry Brown did a very good job cultivating a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval, um, and you know mainly because he had been in the in in the sort of voters' minds for decades. Um, towards the end, when he when Jerry Brown weighed in on something and endorsed something, be it you know the rainy day fund or the water bond or other measures or or, or politicians that generally um, voters aligned with him because they trusted his endorsement. But I don't know if Newsom has enough time with with voters across the state, right. not just San Franciscans, to build up that same kind of good housekeeping seal. Yeah, but we can dream. We can dream. I, I confess that I wrote in this piece, and people are going to read it and think I am totally loony. But to show that 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 power has gives you lots of options, even if you really wouldn't actually do them. Um, it was an era gone by in California and American politics where governors would run as a favorite son in a primary, with the whole goal being the vote was fractured among uh, the party faithful, and the governor says, I'm not going to be president, but you vote for me. I take the, de- the delegates into the convention. I will pick the right person. I mean, you know, Gavin Newsom could be a favorite son, and, you know, that would be a, a wild moment there, you know, and trying to, like, do it. Again, I know it's not going to happen, but it's so much fun to think about the possibilities uh, when political power is this high. And that's the point here is that, I mean, this is this is the top. And, and, and what at this point, where we are now, why say that something's not going to happen? What was because... the headline you guys wrote, had over the weekend? Because he commented on it apparently the weekend apparently and thought he, he loved the LA apparently Times. Apparently he liked what, what it. Did it, say? It, was, uh, it was your line from the story. Yeah, it can't get much better for Gavin Newsom, and it's almost certainly going to get worse. <laughs> This is what it's like to hang out with journalists, guys. We will figure out a way to find the, the the dark side to literally everything. Well, and now for the spoiler alert dark side moment. Are we ready? That was a good transition. It was, it was not too bad. You know, I used to do, I used to do radio and television for a living. Um, this is a, a momentous podcast. I'm not going to say this is the last podcast that Melanie Mason will be on because I don't think that's going to happen. I think I can... can, uh, I can uh, get her back uh, to sit down and talk about her end of politics. But it is the end of a, of a, of a marking of an era for us. Melanie um, is moving to Los Angeles. She's leaving the Sacramento Bureau. Uh, she is going to join the 2020 presidential campaign team for The Times, and she will be all over America covering presidential politics. And after that, she will continue to cover national politics. But we will not have her in the Sacramento Bureau um, you talk about this for a moment and kind of the change for you, and then I want to talk about it for a moment. It's a big deal for all of us. Melanie has been in Sacramento since uh, middle of twenty or August of 2013 or something was your first story. I looked it up. Your first byline from the paper was August of 2013. I know, but but if we really want fun trivia, my I, I came in early to help out with the budget, uh, um, and my second day on the job in the Capitol was the day of the Ron Calderon FBI raid. Oh, so. yes. Capital uh, what, a, what a way to enter. <laughs> we'll remember that one well, as Melanie does. Uh, but she has been here for um, almost six years, and uh, it's time to try something new. So 
off you go. Yeah, it's um, I'm I'm excited. I get to move back to my hometown. Um, I get to um, to cover a presidential race. I've done presidential races before. I was on the 2016 trail for a bit. Uh, 2012 is actually where I started the paper um, covering campaign finance. So, um, but this is going to be probably the most sort of complete arc, and um, it's good timing in a sense because I feel like California matters not just because of the people that we already talked about, um, not just because of the fact that our primary is early, but um, all of these themes that we have talked about in this bureau and on this podcast for the last um, couple of years, I see as playing out on a national level. And I think that my time covering state politics um, really prepares me for kind of thinking of these issues now nationally. And um, I think that I will probably irritate my colleagues quite a bit when I keep saying, oh, yeah, there is a California equivalent to this. Let me tell you about this legislative fight. But I am um, I'm so grateful for my time here because of that, because I really do think um, that it's informed me. And, and um, it's I think that sometimes we journalists sometimes fall into the same traps that California politicians do in talking about how important California is. But um, my time covering here has really has really sort of um, I'll, I'll, I'll preach it everywhere and evangelize about it. Like California is a microcosm and, and what happens here really matters. Um, and what happens in this capital really matters. Um, so I just want to, um, first of all, thank you guys who are listening. Um, you guys are really, um, so thoughtful and engaged and your comments, even though sometimes we joke about, you know, people complaining to us, I love every single one of them. Um, and so I'm really touched by how much you guys um, engage with us. And I can't tell you how much it has made me a better journalist because it has made me think of stories in different ways. So um, thank you all for that. And then my real point of personal privilege is thanking John. Um, well, the <laughs> pleasure is all mine, yeah. but go ahead. Go but ahead. I just, uh, John gave me this opportunity. He didn't have to, um, but he did. And I think that it is, um, it's been so much fun. And he's also put up with me constantly ragging on his dad jokes, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, every once in a while. I wish I, have, I had one to give you now. <laughs> Damn it. I have to remind myself, like, he's my boss. Maybe don't make fun of him so much. <laughs> um, but, um, you guys don't need to listen to us, to me, just say nice things about my boss all the time. But I want you guys to know who are listening that John is every bit as um, kind and generous and professional and um, just wonderful to work with as you think he is. Just by hearing him, hearing his voice and reading him in the paper, it's even better working with him in person. So, Thank you. That was um, nice of you. That, this is the Mutual Admiration <laughs> Society part of the podcast. Um, we're going to miss you. Um, I, I said this a little bit earlier this week, but but just to make a short version of this. And then you can tweet out at Mel about why the hell are you leaving? And uh, people are giving her recommendations of like, you know, well, she lives in it. She's from L.A., but like what to do, where to go. No, but seriously, though, I do want your restaurant recommendations. I haven't lived there in 15 years. You've so been please. gone for a while. Yeah. But um, but I will tell you, I mean, I've been in Sacramento for a while. I don't think I knew I was a lifer until all of a sudden I'm a lifer. But um I have found few journalists to be as consequential in the time that they have been here as Melanie has been. Um, and I would point out in the last three years that I've been here at the Times and working with her, um, her impeccable connections with people in the Capitol. Um, everybody knows that she does her homework, that she does it right, uh, whether she's talking about public policy issues, whether she's talking about uh, political wrangling and who's up and who's down. And then really, really, really two things in particular. Uh, Melanie's work on uh, the Me Too movement in California politics, I think, stands the test of time as some of the best work I think that you will see on the topic. Um, the stories were thorough. They were well reported. They were uh, methodical. Uh, we were incredibly um, 
precise in everything we did on those, and that was led by Melanie. Melanie talking to women who were telling the hardest stories of their lives, I think is one of the most moving things I have seen in my career. And then the last thing that she did, which was this series on the next California, I think also stands the test of time. When you hear what we talk about on housing, on wildfire issues, on the future of work, on aging, the older California, you just simply go back to the stories that Melanie wrote over the course of a four-week period for the paper, um, and you have a really good guide to where we are headed, I'd say, for several years. And that's that's hard to find in this business. So we cannot replace her. We've technically brought on more people, but we don't replace Melanie. Uh, no one will talk about the Dodgers and the Lakers and the Georgetown Hoyas Woo. the way she has <laughs> talked about. Although Liam's a Hoya. Yes, that's true. Um, yeah. Thank you, Liam, for holding down at least some good sports taste in this bureau. But um, but we can't we can't replace her. We won't try to replace her. And so my thanks to her for her patience, for her hard work. And it's not a goodbye. We just keep on doing it. So we give her a little fist bump here across the Man. And if you table. guys manage to listen through all of this, <laughs> I will buy you a drink because that was um, indulgent on our parts. But um, I, I, I really appreciate it. Godspeed so to Ms. Mason. We will see her back here talking about national politics and the California connection at some point soon. No podcast for the rest of this week. You'll just have to absorb Newsom's full budget on your own. I'll come back and find someone who can make fun of my jokes as well as Melanie. Uh, That is Melanie Mason from The Times. I'm John Myers from The Times. As always, folks, thanks so much for listening. Happy New Year again. Happy New Year.